0: They will be back shortly to close out our service also with singing. Before they do that, we're going to turn our attention to God's Word now. And so I want to invite you, if you have a Bible with you, to turn to the New Testament book of Acts. And while you're doing that, let me just put in my little plug and my once again thank you to all of the work that went into putting those Christmas brunch boxes together. My wife and I talked about it, and she had this great idea. I said, yeah, let's do it. So we got four of them. Uh, We gave two of them to neighbors, and then one to a neighbor who didn't want it, which is okay, because that's what happens when you reach out to people. You just offer, and some people accept, and some people don't. And so they're like, give it to somebody who needs it. So we were able to share that with somebody else. And then, of course, we ate one ourselves, which was absolutely delightful. In the process of doing this, we got to meet uh, two neighbors uh, that I have never spoken to, and we just stood outside a glorious Sunday, a sunny day yesterday, um, cold, but sunny and dry. And so we were able to stand outside and talk to a neighbor for like 15 minutes. I'd never met before. A really nice lady. Just because there's like, hey, there's something we can go do and go offer to people. So just cool experiences like that. I want to encourage you to think about that. Just... As you're going, we make disciples, right? We, we love one another and we seek to reach out to other people. So thank you to everybody who helped make that happen. I don't think without those boxes, I definitely would have been thinking that way. So what an awesome opportunity to be the church together. And that's what we're talking about throughout this whole second chapter of the book of Acts. Uh, we're gonna be going through the New Testament book of Acts from cover to cover over the next number of months together. And we've spent three weeks here in chapter one, which is really all about how God's mission takes place in the world. What is God up to and how does that relate to you and me? That's that's really kind of the subject. That's what we've been talking about. As I was preparing for this morning, uh, I couldn't help but thinking about one of the coolest things I ever saw. Uh, has anybody ever been to Lahaina in Maui and you've seen the banyan tree that's there? Anybody ever seen that? Some of us have. Um, a banyan tree apparently is native to like India or something, but way back in the day, somebody got one and planted it in Lahaina in Maui and they've cultivated this thing. What's so cool about them, I remember the first time I laid eyes on this thing because uh, I've seen it a couple times now, it was just like, that's amazing. It's not just a tree with a trunk that sends out branches and then leaves and you know maybe fruit or something and that's it. It's a tree that grows differently than, than most trees because what it'll do is it'll send out branches and then you can see in some of these pictures, these branches will have these like tendrils that come off of them and they, they descend down to the ground. They, just, they look like vines, but they're not. They're kind of like bark and wood. It's kind of a weird thing. And if the tree is allowed to grow enough, those, those tendrils will go all the way to the ground and once they do, they will start burrowing into the earth. And so here you've got this trunk of a tree and a branch that comes off of it and, you know, five or 10 or 15 or more feet away, you get these tendrils that go down and if they are allowed to root, they will actually start sprouting roots and it starts a whole new section. And then those vines start to grow together and eventually, over a long period of time, they will fuse and eventually what you get is an entirely different trunk. It's a whole new trunk of the tree. So you get got this tree trunk and then this branch and then this tree trunk and you're looking at it going, wait a minute, <laughs> There's a tree with two trunks and you look around. This one, they've cultivated and grown. There's like trunks all over the place. You can sort of see some of that. The tendrils are in this closer one getting bigger and then the one in the background is almost like a full solid trunk of a tree. None of those were the original trunk of this banyan tree. And so this thing grows as it's rooted here. It spreads out and then it roots again and then those roots become the basis to spread out even more and that's kind of how it grows. I thought about that when I was reading the end of the second chapter of Acts here, because in a way, that's a picture of how Jesus intends his church to function in the world. It's a picture of how Jesus intends his church to function in the world. We've been studying the book of Acts together as a church because it shows us who we really are, really. Um which is especially important in this this time of gathering restrictions when many of the things that we are used to doing as a church we either can't do for a while or we have to do them in heavily modified ways, which, of course, is, is frustrating and aggravating. But once you kind of get over those emotions, it's really caused us to step back and say, yeah, but, but the things that we do, the activities that we participate in, really aren't the point. They're just means to the end. So what's the end? What's the end? We've been saying throughout this pandemic that as a church that our environment has changed significantly, but our mission has not. It's still the same. We just need to pursue it in different ways. So that begs the question, what is the mission and how clear are we on it? Well, it's really helpful to study the New Testament book of Acts because it tells the story Of the first church in history that started and how other churches were then spread like the banyan tree from that church and what they really were all about what mission they were on before they had all of the the activities that we are used to as a church specifically we're spending these three Sundays leading up to Christmas in the second chapter of the book of Acts which we will finish this morning and what we've basically seen is this God's mission is to make Disciples, we'll talk about what that means in a second, to make disciples, followers of himself. And here's how he does it by spreading the gospel in the power of the Holy Spirit through the local church. Spreading the gospel in the power of the Spirit through the local church. And so a couple of Sundays ago we saw in the beginning of this chapter the role of the Holy Spirit, God's Holy Spirit. We talked about who He is and what He does and how we need Him and how that functions. Last Sunday we talked about the gospel, the good news. What is the message that will transform your life? Are we clear on it? Are we presenting it uh, the way that God has laid it out for us? Spreading the gospel in the power of the Spirit. But today we want to see how that happens through local churches. That's God's plan. That's God's plan. There are exceptions, of course. People can you know, hear a radio broadcast or read a book and hear the gospel and decide to become a Christian on the spot. That happens, and praise God when it does. But the normal practice and process of, of God's intention is that through local churches, Christians are equipped to share and spread the gospel, not only individually, but together as a church family. And so we've seen the Holy Spirit as the power for God's plan. The gospel is the content of the plan. Today we see the church as both the platform and the product of God's plan, which gets me back to the Banyan tree, right? <laughs> local churches are the product of God's plan. Every single person who, who belong, who's a member of this church is a Christian, and that's the only reason that we're members of a church is because God changed our lives. So, so the good news, Jesus dying for us has made us followers, and we have now come together to form a church like every other local church. And so in a very real way, a church like ours is a result, a product of the gospel. Thank God for that. But that's not an end, actually. That's not the end. The idea is then that that local church becomes a platform to continue to spread the gospel, like dropping down a new trunk where a new congregation grows up. That congregation then continues in the power of the Holy Spirit to spread the gospel, see more people find eternal life, and new churches start. That's the idea. God spreads the life-giving gospel through our commitment to his church. That's what we're going to see this morning. We're in Acts chapter 2, verses 41 to 47, the end of the chapter. Let me just read those, and we'll notice a couple of things together. Acts chapter 2, verse 41. So, those who received his word, that is Peter's word, he's just preached the gospel, they were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Day by day, attending the temple together, And breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. God, open our eyes now to behold wondrous and life-changing things from your word. For our good and your glory we ask in Christ's name. Amen. There's a couple things, I think, to notice in this rather brief but very, very dense, it's a very, very highly summarized account of the, the life of history's very first church. We saw earlier in chapter 2, if you've been following along the sermon series with us, <clears throat> the Holy Spirit shows up and Peter preaches the gospel to this large crowd and a whole bunch of them are like, that sounds like crazy talk. And a whole bunch of them are like, that sounds life-changing. I believe in Jesus, so they become Christians. And now we see what happens next. They gather together, and they form history's first church. And these verses we just read are a very condensed and highly summarized version of what that meant, who they were, what they did together. And it's instructive. The first couple of verses describe, verses 41 and 42, the commitment of the church. They describe the, the commitment of the church. And then later we're going to see the kind of uh, community, the characteristics of the church community. And lastly, how that led to many more conversions. Let's make note, first of all, of the commitments of the church in verses 41 and 42. Uh, Verse 41 kind of begins the summary. Uh, You may recall, if you were here last Sunday, after explaining the gospel, a bunch of the people in the crowd said to Peter, okay, that's true, we believe it. What do we do? How do you respond to the gospel? And so we saw that last week. how The Bible describes clearly what it means to respond to the gospel. You repent, or in the language of verse 41, you receive that message, you believe it, and you commit yourself to it. And then the second thing is you get baptized. And so that's what they did in verse 41. They did exactly what he said. Those who received the word were then baptized, and they were, uh, that day, added about 3,000 souls quite a significant experience. But now notice in verse 42 what those 3,000 people, give or take, who joined the roughly 120 people who were together before that, got together and did. They devoted themselves, verse 42, to four things. Now the four things are briefly summarized, so I'm going to touch on each one of them, but what I want us to do is kind of following the lead of this text. We're not going to unpack in depth the four things we're going to kind of take them as a whole and see what the life of the church was like they were devoted to four things first of all the apostles teaching uh, in shorthand that was they wanted to they wanted the apostles to explain to them the bible They were, many of them, very familiar with the Bible. This was a largely Jewish audience. They had been raised in synagogues, and the Bible they had in their day, which we call the Old Testament, they had heard and learned a lot about, but they didn't understand how Jesus was the fulfillment of everything in the Bible. The apostles were explaining that, and they're like, it's an old text, but this is a new message. I want to make sure I get it right. And so they devoted themselves to learning the Bible according to how the apostles taught it. So it was a group of people that just... um, Listened to preaching or podcasts uh, casually or passively. Uh, they were all in on under, they devoted themselves to. They're like, I've got to figure this out. That's one of the main goals of my life. That's the idea. I got to figure out what God's word really means and how it relates to me. That's the first thing they were devoted to. Secondly, they were devoted to the fellowship. The Bible says, the fellowship and that not only refers to the group like there was a group of them and they knew who they were and they were committed to each other but the, the word that was used there this was originally written in the Greek language in the first century of course we're reading an english translation of it the original word when it says they were to, or sorry they were devoted to the fellowship sort of has this idea that it's not just that they were a group it's that they had a shared life together they had a shared life together and they were devoted to that life we're going to see some of the characteristics of that a little bit later in the passage how they cared for one another financially and spent time together and ate meals together and that kind of thing but the point is that that it wasn't just a crowd of people that happened to show up at the same time at the same place to listen to the same preacher and then go away and not really interact with one another no no, they were devoted to the apostles teaching but they were also devoted to their shared <clears throat> life together excuse me as a church i've got a little cup there tommy could you grab that for me oh, my Amazing wife is already on it. I'm going to walk out of the camera frame, which is not something I used to have to think about. Thank you. You are really cute. Have I noticed that? No, I'm good. Okay. Sorry. That was on mic. Can you scratch that off the recording? I apologize. She's when you can see her whole face. Okay. Where were we? I'm sorry. The fellowship, they had life together. Guys, you're just living some of our life together. As a family, you're seeing it. Okay. They were devoted to their shared life together. Thirdly, they were devoted to the breaking of bread. The breaking of bread together. <clears throat> sharing meals is what that really means. Both as a whole church when they gathered. Uh, that could also perhaps encompass their practice of the Lord's Supper like we just did a few minutes ago. Uh, but also in smaller home gatherings. They, they ate meals together. They came together around the table. There was, there was a hospitality. They were devoted to, that's a strong word, sharing life together in smaller contexts. We're going to get to know each other and welcome one another into our space. Lastly, they were devoted to the prayers. The prayers. Bible scholars aren't 100% sure uh, what the prayers are. It could be specific prayers they prayed or specific set prayer times. Either way, the basic idea is clear. They constantly sold out to pouring out their hearts to God and seeking his work in them and through them. Those are the four things they were devoted to in this summary. Now, what do we take away from that? What I want us to see today is that we're devoted to. We'll talk a little bit more about the things here in just a minute as the text goes on, but it starts by saying they were devoted to these things. That is a strong word. It's a picture of these people not just adding Jesus to their already busy lives, right? Like, I'm a farmer and I'm a good Jewish boy or girl and I'm a farmer, or I cook meals and take care of my family. Oh, now I'm a Christian good boy or girl. So great. I want to learn about Jesus, but I'm still basically a farmer. I'm still basically pursuing the same goals. That's not what this was about. Rather, from the earliest days of their Christian experience, they were rethinking their entire lives who they were and what they were all about. Which leads to an observation I think is important. What you're devoted to becomes a question of personal identity at some point. Which is what it means to be a disciple. Here's what I mean by that. The idea of being devoted to simply means, I mean it means what it sounds like. Like they stayed at it, you know, no matter what. They were committed to this. It was their commitment. It was their life pursuit. You know, like we might say, oh, that guy is such a devoted husband or he's such a devoted father. And we know what we mean by that, right? It means like he's all in, whether it's easy to be a husband or father right now or hard, doesn't matter. He's still going to be committed to his wife, committed to his kids, and he's going to be committed, you know, for the long haul. That's, that's the idea here. Like this is, this is who I am. This is what I do. Devotion leads to identity. We might say um, we probably all heard the phrase "you are what you eat." <laughs> we might say you are what you seek. You are what you seek. Devotion ends up shaping your identity because you know the truth is everybody's pursuing something. Isn't that true? Now some of us have really clearly defined goals and others of us are way less organized about our lives. We're kind of messy. I couldn't tell you what my life's goal is, but whether you're organized or not, everybody gets up in the morning. We're all pursuing something, whether it's clear in our minds or not. And whatever that that something is, whatever that chief goal is, like it informs your decisions and decisions then start to form your habits. Habits shape your character. And thus, it determines who you really are. You see, eventually, what we're most passionately pursuing shapes our identity. You see this in some really obvious examples, right? People that are like all about money and financial success, it sort of becomes who they are, right? Their identity is in what they own. I remember years and years ago now, I had a a couple of meetings with a guy who... um, always, I only had a couple conversations with him, two or three, but in every conversation I had, he managed to work in a description of his car. And I don't now remember what it was. This was a long time ago, but he had some nice BMW or Mercedes, like uber fancy luxury sedan. And he would always manage to talk about his, you know, BMW 335 16i 12 valve. I don't know, whatever, but like I can't remember what it was now, but like he would say that specifically, and he would mention that it had leather seats and things like that. When it like didn't really pertain to the conversation, it was always one of those. You're like like the first time he did, it, I was like, okay, that was weird. He's got a nice car, whatever. And then you know I met him again. It happened again. You're like whatever. It, every time I saw him, he had really really nice, um, expensive, custom tailored suits on. He'd always wear rings that had you know they were like man rings, but they had like stones in them and jewelry and stuff. I think it was real. I don't know because that's not really my thing, but. And, and he would say things like, you know, oh, I mean, all this, you know, the suits, oh, God's bless me, you know, all the suits and the rings and the car, you know, that doesn't matter. I'm all about Jesus. But, you know, the car that has the really cool 12 valve and the heated seats and the leather, and, you know, but it, that doesn't matter to me. You know, it was just kind of funny. It's like, the fact that you keep bringing this up, <laughs> like, tells me, like, you're really proud of this car, even in the midst of, you know, defining it. I mean, maybe, maybe you've convinced yourself that you're not, all about your stuff but like everybody else around you can tell like that's really important to you, right? What you pursue becomes of who you are. Comfort and security seekers can tend to, not always of course, but can tend to become um, fearful. You know, I become more of a hermit. I don't want to leave the house. (laughs) I don't want to do too many perceived risky things because what I'm really after is stability and security and Comfort. maybe they didn't necessarily mean to be a a cautious kind of hermit. That's not what they envision themselves being, but that's what they've become because that's what they're seeking. Or, you know, we've had a whole American generation now, or maybe two, that's been taught to, to passionately pursue your own heart, to passionately pursue yourself and your own view of what you want to be. And and there's parts of that that are really good, but man, that has just been drilled into a whole generation of Americans now. Like, you be you. Don't let anybody else tell you who and what you're supposed to be. You be who you are, and you put that out there and get that celebrated and affirmed by others. Tune out what other people are saying about you. Tune into your own sense of who you need to be. And it's not at all a surprise that researchers have documented an absolute pandemic of loneliness. Loneliness in modern America. Because, of course, when you raise a whole generation of people saying, don't listen to everybody else, only listen to yourself, and then you put two people who think that way in relationship and tell them to have an intimate relationship, it doesn't work, right? Because I'm so frustrated she's not listening to and affirming who I am. And guess what? She's feeling the exact same way about me. And so we end up being lonely. You see, what you pursue has ended up shaping who you are, sometimes in ways we didn't intend. You are what you seek. Our, our pursuit defines our identity. And, and the reason I'm talking about this is I think that's what's going on in this passage. That at its, its heart is what a disciple of Jesus is really all about. Um, my lovely wife last week was giving me a lot of uh, feedback on, on the sermon. I usually ask for her input. She gave me a lot of positive feedback. She said, you know, but one thing that could have made it better is Like last Sunday, you used the word disciple like 500 times, and you never really defined it. I was like, oh my gosh, you're right. (laughs) I didn't mean to do that. That's kind of a technical Bible word, and I usually like to define those, and maybe I didn't. But I want to try to rectify that now. When, When God is talking about making disciples of Jesus, disciples of himself, what is he talking about? This group of people gives us a good picture of that. Again, they didn't just add Jesus to their existing life ambitions. Rather, Jesus changed their ambitions from their very earliest stages of following him. And that's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. A disciple is somebody who identifies with his or her leader, um, becomes a follower of that leader and their teachings not myself and my own goals and plans. Like you join his movement, you identify with him, you become a learner, and it's heart, that's kind of what the word means, a learner follower. You become sort of like an apprentice. My whole life is now, I'm all about Jesus. But I'm not just like a fan of Jesus. I don't just wear the jersey, but I still live for myself. No, no, my whole self is changing. I'm now about him and his thing. And I'm desperately, passionately pursuing him to learn more about him. That's what a disciple is, which is what a Christian is. They're the same thing. And we may consider ourselves Christians because of how we identify on a census form, but in the end of the day, like, that's not a term for us to define. Like The Bible defines. Jesus defines what it means to be his follower. And the Bible defines it in terms of discipleship. Are you all in with him? Are you for him? Are you pursuing him, learning from him? That's now shaped my identity. That's what God wants. Worshippers, people who are loving him, following him, learning from him. That's what it means to be a Christian. And notice, by the way, that that this devotion of theirs, this discipling of theirs, started really early in their experience with God. I found that interesting. Started really early in their experience with Jesus. Uh, We just saw in verse 41... They repented of their sins. We talked about what that meant last Sunday. They were baptized as Peter had taught them. And then immediately, or, or almost immediately, they devoted themselves to Jesus' movement and Jesus' people. They devoted themselves to their fellowship. They devoted themselves to learning together what it meant to follow Jesus. Right on the heels becoming followers of Jesus or disciples, these first Christians went all in on pursuing God in community with one another. Doesn't sound like there was much of a trial period, you know what I mean? Researchers have pointed out in modern Western societies like ours many times before that there's an increasing modern tendency toward a prolonged adolescence, right? Many of you know what I'm talking about. Like, they've documented how increasingly, uh, in general, lots of exceptions to this, of course, but, but more and more young people, as they're growing up, are delaying the taking on of, of full, independent, you know, adult responsibilities um, long past ages when they would have in the past, well into their 20s, many cases even in their 30s, and beyond. Of course, there could be lots of good reasons for that in individuals, but in general, it's interesting that, that pretty much all social scientists agree that this is not a good trend, It's not a good trend for those young people, and it's not really a good trend for society as a whole. But, you know, there can be a spiritual prolonged adolescence as well. There can be a spiritual prolonged adolescence. You know, where we put off growing into the commitments of full, mature discipling. Maybe we commit to Jesus and have our sins forgiven and get baptized. That's awesome. But we stop short of making a devoted commitment to a local church. Maybe we attend, we connect, we do some things, but we don't really want to commit. And honestly, unfortunately, a lot of churches have not helped in this regard. Because in the U.S., for the last number of decades, um, we're so used to a sort of consumer-minded society that a lot of us pastor types fall into consumer language, whether we know it or not. And it becomes about how do we attract people to come to this church and lower the the threshold so that the threat level is lower. And so sometimes it's like, man, I've been a Christian for 10, 20, sometimes 30-plus years, and nobody's ever told me I was supposed to be doing anything other than what I'm doing. There's so many reasons for it. but we don't even realize we're missing something. The example of these believers show that disciples of Jesus are devoted to a local church family. I Commit to Christ, I get baptized, and then they devoted themselves to their fellowship together. Now, I realize some of you may be here literally for the first time. You don't know me or any of us. Maybe you're tuning in on the live stream and you just found us this morning and you have zero interest in in church or background with church, if that's true, I am so glad you're here. Thank you for coming. Thank you for tuning in. We are thrilled to have you here. And we're thrilled because God wants to change your life. He really does. He wants to change your life and to reconcile you to himself forever. And that will happen as you encounter the good news of Jesus and respond to it in repentance and faith. And baptism and so if you're here you're kind of hearing this language of like being devoted to a a group of people and you're like wow i'm not even sure i want anything to do with that that may not be the step that you're at and that is totally fine actually that's that's good that's good if you're here and you feel like you know very little compared to most of the other church people here whether you're currently a follower of jesus or not let me encourage you not to feel like you're missing out on anything Because if you feel like you know less than a lot of people here, you're not alone. You're not alone. The truth is, we are all learning and growing. And that's all that's happening to you. So if you've tuned in for the first time, or maybe the hundredth time, God has something for you to learn. And I just want to encourage you to embrace that and learn it. We celebrate that. Because there isn't a person here who isn't either learning or is totally stagnant. (laughs) I'm constantly learning in my relationship with God from other Christians, from members of this church, from my family. We just want to smooth that process out for you as much as we can. Or maybe, maybe you're here or you're tuning in and you've had more background with Jesus and with church, but it's been pretty negative. And so you're like, wait a minute, all this talk of like being devoted to a local group of Christians, I don't think I'm ready to do that at all. It's a lot of people's stories, unfortunately. And if that's your story, I am so sorry. I'm really sorry that that's happened to you. I know that is a lot of your stories because I know many of your stories. Churches, many times other churches, sometimes this church, have done things that have been um, felt hurtful or, or, or uncomfortable. And that's because all churches, including this one, are made up of fallible sinners who often sin. That is not an excuse, it's just a reality. Just as in all families, we hurt one another because we sin against each other and we're really close to each other. But we still need a family. We need to repent, we need to ask forgiveness, we need to forgive one another, we need to extend a lot of grace and love, but we still need a family. And disciples of Jesus still need a church. And maybe you've attended churches for years, but you've stopped short of of formally committing, of, of being devoted to your local church family. The example of these early disciples teaches us that once we receive the gospel and we're baptized, we're devoted, we devote ourselves to a local church family. Why? Because God's mission is to make disciples by spreading the gospel and the power of the Spirit through local churches. And as followers of Jesus, we are the local church. He wants us to be devoted to one another. So their devotion tells us a lot about discipling, but, but the second thing I want us to see in this passage, it's the bulk of the rest of the passage, shows what kind of community that devotion produced. Lest we only hear the duties, you know, or the obligations of discipleship, there's a compelling picture here, although it's in very condensed summary form and it will be unpacked over the next several chapters, there is a compelling picture of the beauty of their life together. Three characteristics are briefly summarized here in verses 43 through 46. They experienced fear and awe at God's power, They experienced a oneness that showed itself tangibly in the way they cared for one another. And they experienced a purposeful gathering together where they were on mission together. Uh, Verse 43 talks about the awe that they experienced when they came together as followers of Jesus, committed. An awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Once again, the biblical narrative nodding to the fact that if God's Holy Spirit doesn't show up, we've got nothing spiritually significant happening as a church family. We desperately need God's Holy Spirit to be here. You never know exactly what his Holy Spirit is going to do God doesn't necessarily, he's not like a vending machine. You know, if you push these buttons, you're going to like speak in tongues or receive a gift of healing or prophesy from God or something like that. We, we can't program him that way. And that's fine because we follow him. He doesn't follow us. But here's what I do know. Here's what I do know. The Holy Spirit of God wants to change you. Right now. Today. I don't know how, but I know that's what he's about. He wants to miraculously and supernaturally transform us, to bring us to repentance and faith, to make us more like Jesus than we could ever be on our own, and then to use us to change other people's lives. It's no accident that you are here this morning or that you're tuning in this morning. I don't know what circumstances brought you here. Maybe you weren't even planning to come or to tune in. Maybe you just stumbled across us. Maybe you thought you weren't going to be here, and you are. Listen, those are not accidents. God is behind that. And he has a message right here, right now for you. So one question to think about is, how is God changing you today? Is he convicting you of sin, nudging you to become a disciple of Jesus for the first time? Is he leading you to take a step of obedience? What would it look like for you to respond to what God is trying to say to you and do in your life right now? If you're anything like me, I usually don't immediately have an answer to that question. I need to think about that. I need to pray about that. I need to spend some time with God's Spirit, asking him to lead me and show me. And I need to talk, talk to other Christians around me. If you'd like to talk to somebody about what your next step is spiritually, I would encourage you, if you do know somebody who's a Christian, you feel comfortable with them, talk to them about it. Bring up your questions. There are no dumb questions. We're all learners. If you would like to, you can come talk to one of our church leaders, myself, Jordan, some of our elders. We'll be here after the service. We'd love to talk to you if you're on campus here. If you're online, we've even put a communication card link there. You can click on our streaming site right now. It'll take you to a web form. You fill out your contact information, and we'll call you back. I'm going to admit, that is super clunky. Okay, it's just weird, um, but in this time when we can't all be together, we just i hope you see the heart behind that. We want to be available to help you take steps of growing in a relationship with God. There's nothing cooler than seeing God change a person's life. Their community devoted to Christ and to one another produced fear and awe from experiencing God's power, but it also produced a oneness with one another that showed up tangibly, verses 44 and 45. All who believed were together. It's an important word. We'll come back to that in a second. They had all things in common and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. This is not like a, a socialist society where nobody had private property. What it just means, and we see this in coming chapters, is when there were financial and physical needs in the church, people with means and assets would liquidate their assets and donate money to the church so that the needs of the church members could be met. They're like, we're a family. And family cares for one another it doesn't mean we don't care for anybody else. It just means we recognize we have a special calling. We're devoted to one another. We have a special calling to care for one another. And that's what that word together means. Um, the word originally had this idea of like they, they understood that they had a shared identity. In other words, like they were a family. They were a family and and they knew it. They didn't look at other people who attended the church as just strangers that attend the same church but I'm only like listening to the preacher and singing the songs and then leaving. It's like we're an us. I may not even know everybody here but we're an us and that's got to play itself out and it did play itself out in the way that they cared for one another. That's why we get excited about doing Advent offerings every year. That's why we get excited about having um, a a fund set aside here at the church that gets used to meet the needs of people, most often here within our own church community, sometimes outside the church community, when there are legitimate financial needs and we can help out. It's expressing the love of Christ in word, but also in action. So is individually reaching out to one another. Man, these days people are lonely, people are depressed. People are experiencing financial hardship. I just read a news article um, that was some research from a couple of big universities back east and one in the UK. We're we're starting to now measure what they call mental health effects of all of this kind of COVID, pandemic, lockdown. And surprise, surprise, especially in younger people, depression rates are skyrocketing. This is serious stuff. Check in with one another, especially over the holidays when our schedules get busy. Connect with people that you know. Email people. Say hello here in the atrium. Check in online. Make note of those names. Let's reach out to one another. Lastly, they were characterized by awe at God's spirit, tangible love, and also by purposeful gathering. Purposeful gathering. Verse 46, day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God. They gathered regularly, large. In that case, it was the temple courtyard in Jerusalem, a great big place where a lot of people could be. And then they gathered small, day by day, throughout the week, just kind of connecting, getting to know one another, and inviting one another into their homes. The interesting thing about the word together in verse 46 is that it's different than the word together in verse 44 going kind have of a different connotation. Verse 44 said, all who believed were together, and then they met each other's needs financially. Then verse 46 says, day by day, they attended the temple together. The first one emphasized the fact that they were a family. They had a shared identity. The emphasis on this particular use of the word together is that they had a mission. It's, the word is like one mind. Uh, sometimes it's translated in the Bible, one accord, one purpose right? They came together with one thing in mind. They were here to pursue their discipleship and be the church God had intended them to be. So yes, there was this beautiful sense of shared identity that expressed itself in real love, but it was also very purposeful. We're going somewhere. We're an us and we're on mission. We're on God's mission. Let's meet together to figure that out and do it together. That's the idea here. They were clear on the mission to join the Jesus movement, to grow in what that means, and then help others join it too. It's worth noting at this point that, that love and commitment have a reciprocal relationship together, don't they? Love, being loved, and then commitment have a reciprocal relationship. Like love leads us to make commitments and then commitments ends up strengthening love. But you see, this was not a group of people that that attended the church gatherings for years slowly built relationships and then to finally decided at some point they were really ready to go all in with one another. That's not the model here. Rather, it's just the, almost the opposite. Like their devotion to one another created the environment for a real experience of family where relationships could go deep and they could experience the power of God and the love of one another. The commitment comes fairly early on. It's kind of like in a marriage, you know? You don't typically propose marriage to somebody you don't even know. Strongly counsel against it. Not a good idea, right? (laughs) Commitment doesn't come out of nowhere. I mean, you get to know somebody, you fall in love, you end up deciding, yeah, we're on the same page. I mean, clearly, you start to build a relationship before you make a lifelong commitment. But it's interesting that on balance, the lifelong commitment tends to come relatively early in the process. Amy and I have known each other personally for 30, probably about three years now. We've been married for 26 of them. It was great to have a number of years where we were friends. We weren't even romantically interested in one another. Um, and then eventually we started dating and then eventually we became engaged. And yes, there were years where there was an us and it was a relationship without the lifelong commitment. But you know, then we got married. And for the vast majority of those 33 years we've been together, it's been in the midst of and sort of built around this covenant commitment of li- for life. I am in it with you for good no matter what. And that very commitment creates a safety. It's sort of like the skeleton, you know? It creates a structure for the relationship to grow. It still needs flesh and it still needs bones. You still need to act on it. You need to love one another and serve and forgive and do all the things that we do. But all that's being done, like you don't need to be married to love somebody or forgive somebody or serve somebody. But man, when you make that kind of a commitment, it creates the environment where the relationship can go super deep. And it's the same with churches. It's the same with churches. Churches their early devotion helped produce the kind of joyful gospel community that you see pictured here. That's the same for us. So friends, if you're a Christian this morning, if you're a disciple of Jesus, and if you consider Harvest, your home church, is there a step of commitment to the others in our church that God wants you to take? Both to increase your experience of deep Family, as well as to contribute to making this a place where more people experience that. There's a reciprocal relationship between love and intimacy on the one hand and commitment together on the other hand that was pictured beautifully in this early church. And that love and that commitment was attractive. Leads to our third and final point. All this talk of committing to one another and experiencing God's power ended up transforming people's lives. Verse 47. They were praising God, having favor with all the people. By the way, pause. That's going to change fairly soon, (laughs) if you know the story of Acts. Um, They were initially a new movement. Most people apparently kind of thought, they seem a little weird, but that's a bunch of really nice people. Fairly quickly, that changes. They start to get some real serious opposition, and not everybody is pleased with Christians. But nonetheless, look what's happening. The Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. These disciples came together and they made more disciples because that's what Jesus told us to do. Go as you're going, make disciples of all nations. That's the mission. That's what I've given you to do. That's what I've done in you. You now become the platform, just like that panion tree, to go do it out in other people's lives. And that was happening. That was happening. God wants to make new disciples, followers and worshipers, and he does that when the gospel spreads but the power of his spirit through the life of a local church like ours. It's been a delight to see a number of people in the last few years whose lives have been totally changed here at Harvest. i got to be honest, I want to see much, much more of that. Do you? What does it take for us to go all in on each other and on God and be clear on our mission as best we can? We're going to fumble. We're going to mess up. It's okay. I'm sure they did too because God is in it, not us. Oh, but to reach and to pray that God would use us to lead more people to eternal life. Friends, I'll end with this. Of all else that could be said about this COVID pandemic, it has definitely given us an opportunity to relook as a church at everything we do. And I kind of mentioned this a little bit last Sunday. Um, I said back then that you know, we've we've always believed that our our main mission is to to be disciples who make disciples, but I I confessed a little bit that in the last couple of years, I've gotten so focused on other really good things, good things, but I've gotten so focused on it, I've kind of gotten my eye off of that ball. And I want to spend some time over this holiday season. You could pray for me. Um, I'm going to leaf back through a few books I've read in the past. I've been talking to lots of people, including a group of pastors here in the area that talks about these things, talking with our staff, talking with our elders, just trying to figure out, like, okay, God, how do we make the most of this time? How do we refocus as a church who we are so that one day, Lord willing, soon, when this whole pandemic restrictions start to relax and we can go back a little bit more to normal, we don't just go back to who we were. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but it's not about going back. It's about going forward. And how does God want to transform us? Would you pray for me in that? Could I end by encouraging you to do the same thing? To ask, how is God working in your life right now? Maybe he's got you here because he wants you to become a disciple of Jesus for the first time. Man, join the family. Maybe he's, you've been a part of his family for a while and he's calling you to give more of yourself to him. What would that look like? Or maybe you're actually following pretty hard after Jesus and you're very committed to your local church, but he's saying, now I want you to go make more disciples. Who else could you pour into? Whatever step you're needing to take, God wants to use you and me to help more people find eternal life in Christ. i want to ask the worship team to come back up here. And as they do, let me just remind us that next week we celebrate Christmas. This second chapter of Acts is a great fitting introduction to the whole story. And it's good to kind of wrap up here, but, but next week we're going to take a break and look at the Christmas story, but we're not really ultimately taking a break from, Christmas, uh, from, from the book of Acts. Because Christmas is all about God coming into this world as Jesus to make all of this happen. We're not alone. We're not abandoned. And that's what we're going to celebrate next week. God is pursuing his mission, and that mission centers on you and I becoming what we were made to be, his followers and his worshipers. There's nothing greater than that. Father God, I pray that you would receive us. Having heard from you, we want to respond, uh, certainly first in song, but much more than a song. We want, to, we want to give you our lives. We want to be even more of a church where people can come and there are no dumb questions there are no reasons to hide. There are only answers because we trust in you. And Spirit of God, I pray that you'd use us to that end, that you'd move us to obedience and faith, that you'd receive our worship and praise, and that you would be pleased because you're worth it. That's what we declare now. In Christ's name, amen. Would you stand with us, please?